0: Hello, thanks for listening to our Fusion Sermon podcast. Fusion is a worshiping community within Hardaway Ministries. We gather at 1030 a.m. in the Red Brick Church building on the Hardaway campus, on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Fusion community and Hardaway Ministries, please visit hardaway.com. Let's jump in. We are continuing uh, our series. We've been in this series uh, following this book, Believe, and uh, in the second 10 weeks of the series, we've been looking at what does it mean to act like Jesus? That's kind of a a silly way of of, of putting it, but really what we're exploring are are the core, or not the, but some of the core practices uh, that mark the Christian journey of spiritual formation. So the Christian practices of spiritual uh, formation, what we might call the spiritual disciplines, Uh, or spiritual practices. These are practices that Jesus himself participated in that he practiced. These are practices that Christ followers throughout the centuries have participated and lived into as they continue to be formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. These are practices that are testified in the scriptures. And particularly for the first five weeks, Jesus is really our model. Jesus is our example. We are gonna zero in on Jesus. What did Jesus do? How did Jesus live? What were the rhythms and practices that framed Jesus' life? And then we're gonna think about how that impacts our lives today. Our working imagery, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Uh, the working imagery or illustration is that of an elite athlete or an accomplished musician or artist, right, who's mastered their craft. It takes discipline, right? It takes practice. It takes training to reach the highest levels of participation or competition. Some say 10,000 hours to master a craft. It takes time, discipline, and training and practice. And that's true not just for the elite athletes, uh, but I would also say that even the, the average or, in my case, less than average athletes, I'm playing basketball Wednesday nights, uh, it, it, you, you got to stay on it or else when you get back on the basketball court like I did a couple weeks ago, you feel it in your entire body, right, because you're sore the next day. But it takes practice and discipline to master any craft. And in, the, in many ways, the Christian or spiritual disciplines or practices, there's a parallel there. These are, these are the practices, these are the disciplines that begin to shape us and form us more and more into the likeness of Jesus as they draw us into the presence of God and form our inner life. And that inner life begins to outflow into our outward expressions of serving God and loving people just as Christ has commanded us. So last week we looked at our first practice which was the practice of worship focused uh, much, in, much of our time a couple weeks ago on, on the weekly rhythms of gathered worship certainly you can you can worship on your own but we really focused on the communal gathering of God's people for us typically it's Sunday and this morning we are looking at uh, one of the other foundational practices the practice of prayer now we spent a whole summer studying the Lord's Prayer, right? And so there's a lot of ways we can talk about prayer, but this morning what I want to focus on uh, most specifically is, is those times of individual personal prayer that shape our days and our weeks. And again, we're going to use Jesus, who is our Lord, our Master, as our example and model. And uh, we're going to step into the gospel of Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to that. Uh, Also, if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand as we hear God speak to us this morning. Mark chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 29 through 39 this morning. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. We read, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went With James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, Simon, that's Peter, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Join me in a word of prayer Lord God, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for these words that have been preserved by your spirit over the centuries that give account of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, we pray that you would open these words, open this account, this biography of Jesus so that we might learn from you. Speak a word of truth, speak a word of grace, Speak a word of challenge, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The year was 2005. I had just graduated Hope College. And uh, this, at the time, I had kind of highlights, frosted tips. Anyway, I had kind of like this blondish hair. 22 years old, from Wisconsin, thick Midwestern accent. I jumped on a plane, and I moved to Southern California and met an absolutely gorgeous 22-year-old from Chino, California, on church that first Sunday morning. Yvonne's in nursery, so I can kind of get away with some stuff today. There's a, there's a couple pictures uh, of, of us in those early days from 2005, uh, not long after that first meeting on June 5th, Yvonne and I set up, no joke, by some of the older ladies from church. They kind of set up a, there's a story there. Anyway, but we kind of went on that first date, and shortly after that, we were we were dating. And some of the pictures you'll notice, some of the fashion choices back almost 20 years ago, uh, those are some awesome boot cut jeans. Here, here, anyone have some of those? Yeah. Some. I had some hoop earrings and uh, some necklaces and, you know. I thought I was cool. Uh, anyway, jury's still out on that one. Okay. So, but, but as I was thinking about those times and, and those early days of dating, do you, do you remember, uh, for those of you who have been in relationship, do you remember those early days of love and romance? Do you remember those days? Can you remember then? I was just thinking about some of those early days of, of those first, that first year or so of, of Yvonne and I dating. And you go on those first dates and there's this, there's this excitement, right? And this, this kind of nervousness, like, oh, my word, my stomach's in knots. We're, we're going out to coffee. What do I say? Or, 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 or your heart kind of jumps when you get that first text message or, or that phone call. Or back then it was AOL Instant Messenger and you just sat by the computer, like, waiting for that sound, you know. And now, I don't know, whatever app it is, but you're, you're, you're nervous and you're excited about getting those those first contacts or or those late nights where you could just talk well into the night, sharing all these stories about all the different things you did in high school and before, and and she was actually interested in that kind of thing, right? I I was thinking about those days, and and you know I I I feel like during our dating life, I, I think I thought I was like the funniest person in the entire world, because Yvonne would literally laugh at all of my jokes, you know, and 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 I thought I was this awesome musician because she would listen to me play guitar and sing to her like for hours and she would just like lovingly gaze into my eyes just get lost and you're like, you're laughing like there it is, there's the proof it, it happened those fun early days uh, of dating and, and then, uh, what, what in the world happened there? yeah, so anyway <laughs> name the characters Dwight Schrute and Angel, there you go you got it, okay I bring that up because it's it's this stage in the relationship that's that's fun, and exciting. Uh, it, it makes it makes for good movies. Think about that. Most of the most of the movies that the romantic comedies that we see, what what stage of the relationship is it depicting? Everything leading up to the wedding. What happens after the wedding? Who cares? That's not the exciting part. The movies focus on the romance and the courtship, right? But what we what do we all know? is that things don't stay that way, right? Can I get an amen? Things don't stay that way. Relationships evolve, relationships change, and I would say they change in a good way. We mature and we grow together, there's greater depth. And this morning what I wanna suggest is that this is also true with our relationship with God, with our relationship with Jesus. It evolves, it it deepens, There's, there's greater depth and intimacy so now, to, to get to that conclusion, what I want to do is just consider the life of Jesus in Ma- Mark's gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me again or keep it open to, to Mark chapter 1. Uh, last year, we, we studied... Each of the four Gospels during our our, our series, the story, we looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you remember when we looked at Mark, Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus. If you're reading Mark from from page one, from chapter one, you'll notice he's he's just moving through the events of Jesus' life very quickly. Like he's not wasting any time. There's a word uh, in most English translations immediately, immediately, immediately. And so he's just moving from one thing to the other. He's not wasting time or energy on unimportant details. Most of the Gospels don't do that, but but Mark does not bother sharing certain things we find pretty significant. Like, Mark doesn't speak about a birth narrative. Instead, he jumps immediately into the ministry of Jesus, beginning with with Jesus' baptism, his testing in the wilderness, starting at verse 9. Then he moves to Jesus announcing the good news in verses 14 and 15, and then calling his first disciples, starting in verse 16. By the time we get to verse 21, chapter 1, verse 21 Mark begins telling this, this story, this account of this incredible day of ministry in the small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Today you can visit Capernaum. It's a beautiful city right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And, 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 and Mark begins by telling of, of this Sabbath day when Jesus goes to the synagogue to teach. Um, there's a, there's a, you can actually see the ruins of the original foundation of that synagogue in, in Capernaum. It's fascinating and beautiful and, and inspiring. But on that day, they, they go into the synagogue in Capernaum, and Jesus casts out an impure spirit in a man there, and the people are amazed that Jesus teaches and speaks with such authority. And then our passage that we began reading in verse 29 picks up that same day. We're told they soon left the synagogue. So this is that same Sabbath day. They leave the synagogue. They go to Andrew and Simon Peter's home, and Simon Peter's mother in law is sick with a fever. Uh, Jesus reaches out and heals her in a moment. Everyone's amazed. And then we read that the whole town of Capernaum again, Mark is just rattling through these details, but just think about this. Mark tells us that the whole town, the entire village of Capernaum, gathers at their house that same evening, standing at the door. The whole village standing at the door, and then we're told that Jesus just begins healing one person after the other of all different kinds of diseases and ailments and casting out demons that have inflicted different people in the city of Capernaum. It is like this ministry healing prayer all-nighter, like this revival in Capernaum, and Jesus is leading the way. I mean, what an incredible and exciting and exhilarating day of ministry, right? And this is our introduction to much of what the ministry of Jesus would look like. Mark's kind of giving us a snapshot of of what these three years of ministry would look like. Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's why he's come, to preach the good news. But then he also brings the good news of the kingdom in tangible ways. Through healing people of different diseases and casting out demons and evil spirits. Now for a moment, just take a moment with me and, and just imagine the disciples' reaction. They've just been called. This is very early on in Jesus' ministry. And and they're following this rabbi. And And in one day, this one day early on in Jesus' ministry, I mean, imagine what they're experiencing. The disciples must have been floored, like blown away, like jaws on the floor as they witness all of these healings and casting out of spirits all on this one Sabbath day in Capernaum. Talk about excitement. Talk about movie worthy, right? This, this one day of ministry, you could make a movie about this, to see God move in such a way and transform so many lives, it must have been absolutely exhilarating. The disciples in that moment must have realized that Jesus was no ordinary rabbi, but indeed something special was going on right here early on in their apprenticeship, their discipleship of Jesus. As I reflected on that, you know, sometimes... For us, life with Christ as Christians can can feel similar. Um, God is on the move; the Spirit's at work. Lives are being impacted all around us. Our lives are being impacted, and this is especially true early on in our in our walk with Jesus. When we first accept Jesus, when we, when we decide to follow Jesus, like we're learning all of these new things. There's all this excitement. God is teaching us new things every day. Their lives are be, our lives are being changed. Other people's lives are being changed. This is often the experience early on in the Christian walk. It's new and it's exciting and it's exhilarating, right? Same with the disciples. Well, as exhilarating and as exciting that must have been for Jesus and the disciples here in Mark chapter 1, I don't know about you, but an all-nighter of healing and casting out spirit, that, that also sounds a little bit exhausting, right? Um, and, 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 and you would think that maybe after a long night of ministry, maybe Jesus would, would, would put in some time for PTO or something or, or take a nap or get some, like a, take a day off. But no, we continue reading. Mark actually offers an important glimpse. Again, he doesn't waste details, but offers this glimpse into Jesus' prayer life. Mark's gospel continues, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Think about this, after pulling an all-nighter, filled with people being healed and set free from demons and the whole town of Capernaum there as witnesses. Again, equivalent to a citywide revival. Jesus gets up early in the morning. Well, this ministry night went well into the night. Like, how much sleep did he actually get? Did he get any sleep? Well, we don't actually know. He gets up before the sun rises, leaves the house, goes off to a solitary place to pray. Jesus, the Son of God, retreats to find silence and solitude to pray we don't know what he prayed we 're not given many details about the prayer we, we don't know we don't know if did he say something specific did he say anything at all what we do know is that he was with his father and that seems to be what was important for Mark to share what Mark feels that is important to let us know is that this is what Jesus did after an intense exciting full day of ministry Jesus retreated to the quiet to pray. And what we see here in Mark chapter one and elsewhere in the gospels is, is a pattern, a rhythm that would continue to pattern and lay out Jesus' life and ministry. This regular rhythm of quiet prayer. The Greek word here in Mark chapter one, verse 35, is the Greek word eremos I think we've talked about eremos before, but why don't you say that with me, aramos? Eremos, you know Greek, right? Eremos, which means solitary or desolate or lonely or quiet. It also is translated as the wilderness in the New Testament. A quick survey of this word in the Gospels reveals other times when Jesus would retreat to the quiet place to pray. Or he would invite his disciples to join with him to retreat to the quiet as he does in Mark chapter 6 after feeding 5,000 people. The gospel writers are intentional about sharing Jesus' regular, private prayer practice that occurs alongside all the excitement and drama of Jesus' powerful teachings and healings uh, in different miracles, right? In fact, Luke makes sure we catch it when he writes uh, this single verse in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. After healing a man of leprosy, we read this, this verse, which is on the screen. But Jesus often withdrew to a ramos. To lonely places and prayed it was a rhythm jesus disciples witnessed throughout their years together with jesus and, and i wonder though how well they understood this practice of intentional prayer even in our passage here in mark chapter one what happens jesus is is off praying with his father in the quiet place and what happens his disciples run up to him and interrupt him like hey everyone's looking for you right Like, to interrupt his his, his quiet time. Uh, And and not only that, but I, I think about the end of Jesus' ministry. There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, like, agonizing in prayer with his father because he knows what's ahead. Take this cup from me. And what happened? The disciples fall asleep. Like, Jesus was modeling something essential for his disciples, and I wonder how often they actually missed it. And I don't share that in any kind of condemning way. Instead, I look at my own life and I think, man, how often do I miss it as well? I wonder how often we miss the importance of this regular rhythm of quiet prayer. Because it's easy to get caught up in the excitement and exhilaration of ministry, to put time and energy and tangible efforts to do good. And those are all beautiful things. It is good to do good, right? Don't don't hear me wrong here. We want to see people hear the gospel, absolutely. We love to see people experience healing and freedom from sin, right, and addictions. But, and we might begin to wonder, well, what does is, what is, what is praying in the quiet actually accomplish? We might be tempted to ask that. In fact, I don't know if you've seen this same sentiment, but there's been a little bit of pushback on uh, just this phrase, thoughts and prayers has kind of faced some backlash. And we get it because to, to say that and not do anything, like we get that. The thought is, we don't need thoughts and prayers, we just need you to do something. Well, friends, according to the gospel accounts, Jesus believed that intentional prayer spent in the quiet was doing something. In fact, it was a crucial part of doing something. Jesus' regular intentional prayer life was closely tied to his ministry work in the world. It's not one or the other, it's both and. The more Jesus ministered and did something, the more he prayed, and the more he prayed, the more he ministered and interacted with people. He would regularly speak of his relationship with the Father, especially in John's gospel, where he over and over says that he and the Father are one. Well, any relationship that you can speak of in that kind of intimate language that takes that has that a relationship that is fostered and invested in, right? Gospels offer Jesus' teaching on prayer. We studied that this past summer. It even gives us specific prayers that Jesus offered. But the oramos, the lonely, the quiet places, that was simply just about time for Jesus to be with his Father in heaven. It was about relationship. And it's a reminder that prayer is not just about communicating with God. It's about communing with God. And it begs the question, how do we foster such intimacy with God? How do we develop similar intentional and and intimate prayer life? How do do I, how do we grow in this practice of prayer? I'll be the first to admit that it's it's a challenge, okay? I struggle with this. I'm a pastor, and I'm just wired as an extrovert. I, I, I could just be with people all the time. So slowing down and spending time in the quiet, like that's just a challenge for me but I recognize how important it is. And for you, if this sounds foreign or overwhelming or, or even impossible, let me just stop and just say, hear a word of grace, hear a word of grace. Some of these, uh, these new electric cars, the Tesla something or whatever, can go zero to like 60 in 2.6 seconds, right? Hear me out here. We have to recognize that we can't go zero to Jesus overnight. You hear me? You with me? Like we we if we compare ourselves to Jesus and think that we're gonna have that kind of intimate prayer life overnight or or with some just download that's unrealistic. It is a lifelong journey with ups and downs and seasons in the desert or the dark night of the soul or seasons of of plenty and richness and intimacy. And intimacy is not about getting better at praying, intimacy is about getting closer with Jesus. Catching the difference? The journey is not about getting better like this upward and to the right mobility, upward mobility and forward progress. No. Intimacy is about downward humility, about humbling ourselves and going deeper down and inward. It takes time. It takes a lifetime and it's a journey. So wherever you're at in the journey don't compare yourself. Don't judge yourself. That's just where you're at. Now we know where to go. And let's talk a little bit about this journey of, of a prayer life, an active prayer life, uh, real quick. In, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says these famous words while teaching uh, on a mountainside. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Three verbs, ask, seek knock. What might these words teach us about the life of prayer? One of the books we used during our our summer series uh, in the Lord's Prayer, a a recommended reading, if you will, was Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by by author and pastor Tyler Stanton. He draws some powerful insights from these famous words of Jesus that I was just reading again this past week, and and I found it to be really helpful. He writes these words uh, on page 170. He says this, in these three verbs, referring to ask, seek, knock, Jesus is naming the trail markers on the common prayer journey, a path tread by men and women of faith stretching all the way back to the beginning. Prayer is a journey that starts with need and ends in relationship. I love that. Need first drives us to our knees, but relationship keeps us there. That's what Jesus was getting at, the deeper invitation hidden in these three simple verbs, ask, seek, and knock. And then he goes on to kind of tease out and suggest how these kind of work into the journey of a deepening, ever-deepening prayer life, one that that often works through these progressions, building on one another as we mature in our prayer life. And let let me just summarize those real quick. Uh, When we think about ask, early on in our prayers, uh, even from a young age, right, they center around requests made to God. There's no, we should continue. In fact, when we get older, maybe we stop asking, and maybe we should continue asking boldly and powerfully. But early on, especially, our prayers center around requests made to God. Our first prayers are saturated with a variety of requests, from the request for a, for a new puppy uh, to a big football win or even a snow day, right? We're asking God to do things in our lives. As we get older and, and, and experience some of the hardships of life, sometimes it's the unforeseen circumstances that drive us to our knees to pray when we have no other answers and we don't know what to do. In fact, even, even when people who don't necessarily believe, when their worlds are turned upside down, that can sometimes drive them to call upon the God they're hoping is there. Ask. Ask. Ask is often the entry point, the beginning stage of the journey of an active prayer life, one that we should continue to develop throughout our lives. The second word, seek. Seek is a word used throughout Scripture that reminds us that prayer is is more than merely transactional, right? Seek reminds us that prayer is not merely the keypad to some cosmic vending machine. Prayer is a pathway through which we seek and pursue and find the giver of all good gifts, Seek reminds us that prayer is a pathway where God reveals himself to us. It is a reminder that the greater purpose of prayer is to find a relationship with the one who gives all these good gifts, Jesus Christ, God our Father in heaven. And so we seek after God in prayer. And then finally, the final verb in this triad, knock, uh, harkens specific imagery, right? Right? To knock at a door gives us this picture of someone then opening the door. That the end goal is is relationship and fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ who opens his door and welcomes us into his house around his table, which we'll partake in just a bit. As Mother Teresa beautifully puts it, she writes these words, Prayer enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Ask and seek, and your heart will grow big enough to receive him and keep him as your own. And this, friends, is our journey, a journey toward intimacy with Jesus. And it takes a lifetime or maybe even more to develop and grow by God's grace and work in our lives. It's not about measuring or assessing where I am on the journey. It's not about where I feel like I should be. Sometimes we get hung up on where we should be, right? Those things aren't helpful. It's not helpful for us to compare ourselves to Jesus and say we fall short. Of course you do, right? Nor is it helpful for us to compare ourselves and get down on ourselves because we see someone else who seems to be so far ahead of us on the journey. Just embrace where you're at and enjoy this part of the journey. It's where some of our most intimate relationships, including marriage, can be helpful, right? We, we don't compare our relationships to someone who's 20 years ahead of us. That's not fair. We shouldn't do that, right? I think about those early years of, of, of young love, if you will. I think about our experience as a couple. Things were exciting. Things were exhilarating. Things, there was passion and fun. Everything was new. There was this love and this romance and this this courtship and and we could talk for hours well into the night and it seemed like barely a moment had passed. And friends, God has wired us for that. There's something beautiful about that, that stage of our relationships and it's a gift. And so if you're in that stage, like God bless you, that is a beautiful season to embrace and enjoy and just live into with wisdom and grace. But know this as well, that God also hasn't wired us to perpetually stay in that stage in our relationship. Like that young love and romance, like it's great in that season, but that's not where God designs our relationships to perpetually stay. Hollywood has fooled us, made us believe that this is love, That this stage in the relationship is the peak, the pinnacle of love and affection, passion and excitement. And unfortunately, what has happened is when that passion and excitement begins to fade as it naturally does, many couples interpret that as we must be falling out of love. Which isn't true. Of course our relationships change and evolve over time. Can you imagine if... If every time Yvonne sent me a text message or a call, I'm I like, oh, my goodness, you know, like, what? After 16 years of marriage? Or, or if we went out to coffee and my stomach was all in knots and I felt like I was going to throw up because I was so nervous to go out to, no. Or how about this? Like, can you imagine us staying up till 3 in the morning so I could share about my glory days in high school basketball? <laughs> no, well, yeah, that's not going to happen. We need sleep, my friends. We don't have time, right? After 16 years of marriage, I love my wife in a deeper and more intimate way than I did when we first started dating. No longer do I feel the need to impress her or entertain her or put on this happy face. Instead, we get to come to each other as we are in that moment with vulnerability and authenticity. And friends, I think that's what Jesus wants to increasingly be the things that define our relationships with him. Intimacy, vulnerability, security that comes from covenant and commitment, love, presence. The last couple months, our family has uh, rediscovered In my opinion, the best fast food burger, Culvers. Any Culvers fan? I don't know if Culvers is fast food, but uh, but we've just kind of rediscovered the double butter burger deluxe. That's okay. Why am okay? It's good. Uh, But anyway, when we go to Culvers, uh, we we typically try to get there a, a little early like try to beat that rush because after 6 or something, it gets just super packed, jam-packed. So we try to get there at like 4.30 if we can, or at least before 5. And, and I don't know if you've been to Culver's during that time frame, but there's a certain demographic of people uh, who go to Culver's at that time. Why? Because they're also incredibly intelligent like us, and they want to beat the rush. Um, but oftentimes, just to generalize a little bit, there's like older couples who go to Culver's at that time. Uh, and and they, they're sitting there at Culver's, and so when we're there, there's a lot of older couples there enjoying a Butter Burger Deluxe and a vanilla shake. And uh, and what I, I think I've shared this before, but um, one of the things I noticed um, is that i go, would go out to eat, and, and, and Yvonne and I would notice like an older couple sitting out for dinner, and they were just eating their food and really content and just not saying much, uh, not saying much. And I remember thinking, like, in my younger years, like, oh, man, like, that's kind of sad. Like, I hope, I hope we never end up at the restaurant with nothing to say, right? And then as I've gotten older, I, I really think I got that wrong. I really think I got that wrong. Because someone who's been married that long, who have been in relationship that long, who've lived life for that long, maybe it isn't the fact that they don't have anything to say. Maybe it's just they don't really have anything they need to say. Because being together is just enough. Being together is just enough. I think about my relationship with Jesus. Certainly there are moments when that require words. Certainly there are moments where I'm gonna gonna go to God in prayer and I'm gonna plead and ask for God to move, and words are appropriate. There's other moments where I need to quiet my heart and listen because God has something to say to me. But my hope and my prayer is that the more I grow in my faith, that maybe just being with Jesus in the quiet is enough. I'll admit that's kind of hard to imagine at this stage in the journey, but I pray that one day it will be enough. And it will be enough because one day we will join with Jesus In eternity, and that will be the greatest gift we have. And this morning, friends, we are going to gather around this table, and it's around this table that we are reminded that Jesus Christ invites us into His presence. We talk about the Lord's Supper. We say it is a feast of remembrance. We we remember what Jesus did, that Jesus laid down His life willingly, gave His life, died on a cross, so that we might have this gift of life both now and forever. We say it is a feast of hope because of the hope that it offers us and those we love that our eternity is assured in Jesus Christ and this becomes a foretaste of that day when we will be with God in glory. But we also say it is a feast of communion because it is a time that we gather together as God's people. We commune with one another but we also commune with the host of this table, Jesus Christ. And so our prayer is as we partake in the bread and the cup, that we would experience God's presence. And that presence would be enough in this moment. We you join me as we prepare our hearts in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the accounts of, of Jesus preserved over the centuries. Lord, as we see the rhythms that marked out, Jesus, your life, and you are the son of God, Lord, may we be inspired and encouraged to pursue, to ask, to seek, to knock, and to commune with our living God. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup Lord, that you would bring healing where we need healing, that you would would bring restoration where our hearts need to be restored, that you would bring encouragement and that you would cover us by your grace so that when we step forward in faith to partake, we would experience a taste of your goodness and your grace and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our Fusion community or how to support Heart of Wike Ministries, please visit us at heartofwike.com.